Section 35 of The Road to Mandalay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Hadley. The Road to Mandalay by Bithia Mary Croker. Chapter 35 Mung Ba Lies Low. In some mysterious manner the cause of Mrs. Krause's death was hushed up. There was no inquest, and the announcement in the Rangoon Gazette merely stated, On the 8th inst, Flora, the beloved wife of Herr Karl Kraus, suddenly, of heart failure. Sophie had been carried off to the barn a few hours after her aunt had passed away, and never again entered Heidelberg. The funeral was large, expensive, and imposing and included a crowd of rather unexpected and decidedly shabby mourners, who brought with them offerings of cheap, homemade wreaths and crosses, and wore faces of sincere and unaffected grief. Strange to say, the grave prepared to receive Mrs. Kraus was next to that in which lay the remains of Richard Roscoe. The two cocaine victims rested side by side in death, drawn together by the long arm of coincidence. It had been decided that Sophie was to remain at the barn and accompany Mrs. Gregory when she went home in August. She quickly recovered her looks and spirits amid bright society and cheerful surroundings. There had been an auction at Heidelberg. Everything was disposed of. The accumulation of twelve years was scattered to the winds. The servants were disbanded, and the house was closed. Herr Kraus sent Sophie a quantity of his wife's jewels, with a letter thanking her for all her care and attention. But she only retained a ring that had been worn daily by her aunt, and returned the remainder, which was afterwards disposed of in Balthasar's sale-rooms, and fetched a handsome sum. It was said that Herr Kraus had felt his wife's death acutely. He had left Rangoon without the ceremony of farewells, departing no one knew whither. Time slipped by, and so far had brought no trace of the cocaine gang. On several occasions Shafto had ridden round by the big kyung behind the turtle tank, and met with no success, nothing but a shake of the pongyi's shaven head. On his first visit he had dismounted, given his horse to its size, and boldly approached the monastery, outside of which an imposing group of Pongyis was assembled. The attitude of some was lofty and disdainful. Others, with a friendly glance, acknowledged this stranger's ceremonious greeting. Towering majestically among his fellows stood Mong Ba, who, throwing them a hasty explanation, advanced to welcome Shafto with a soldierly tread and a jaunty swing of his yellow robe. Then, taking him aside, he began to talk to him in a cautious undertone. "'I am sorry to tell you I have no cover yet. If I had some female acquaintance, it would be so easy as kiss my hand. But I cannot break my vow or spake to a woman. So you have no clue? There's dozens of clues, if I could get hold of one. That's what aggravates me and has me tormented.' "'But I'll worry it out yet, and that's as sure as me name is McRyan. "'I thought it was Mung Ba. "'So tis mostly, and officially, 
But this business I'm on is a white man's job, and if it's to be done, I'll do it. As he spoke, he removed his clumsy horn spectacles, and Shafto realized that the eyes gazing unflinchingly into his own were those of an enthusiast, and possibly a hero. Seen in tell-tale daylight, and without his disfiguring glasses, the Pongi looked years younger. Hitherto, Shafto's impression had been that his strange acquaintance was a man of fifty. Five-and-thirty would be nearer the mark. His eyes were a shade of deep indigo blue, with thick black lashes, high cheekbones, were possibly a legacy of Singalee's grandmother. A square, well-shaped head, firmly set upon a fine pair of shoulders, a square chin and jaw, and a well-cut mouth with shining white teeth were his inheritance from the West. Undoubtedly, if Mung Ba's religion had not compelled him to sacrifice every hair on his body, including his eyebrows, he would have been an uncommonly good-looking fellow. But an absolutely bare face and bald cranium was a heavy handicap were he Apollo himself. At least thrice a week Shafto, in the character of a private inquiry officer, rode slowly round the Kyong, and had a word or two with the tall, upstanding priest. One evening the latter beckoned to Shafto to dismount, and, leading him apart, assured him that he was creeping on at last. As soon as I know what I think I know, I'll send you a bit of a chit. It's an awful traffic, this infernal trade, now I've seen into it, cheek by jowl. These drugs is worse and crueler than wild animals, and we can't kill them. No, worse luck, assented Shafto. They kill us. I say, Mungba, don't your friends in the monastery wonder why I so often ride round this way and look you up? Oh, yes. Some does be as curious as a cat in a strange larder, but I have it all explained to their satisfaction. Then, dropping his voice, he added mysteriously, They think I'm converting you. What, to Buddhism? And Shafto burst out laughing. Fay, you might do worse. Possibly, but I am all right as I am. That's a good hearing. Well, I'm not for troubling anyone's mind, sure. Aren't we all, with the sweep of his powerful hand, striving to reach the same place? And if it's what I expect, I hope to meet ye. Where's the gong for prayers? And I must fall in. Two days later, Shafto received a letter written in a neat clerkly hand. It said, If you will be at the great Godima in the woods beyond the turtle, Tank, by five o'clock tomorrow, Tuesday, you may hear news. M.R. The great Godima in the woods is a gigantic image in alabaster, encompassed by palm-ferns and half-clothed in flowering creepers. The day of this particular shrine has sunk below the horizon. Worshippers are absent, and the flowers laid around and about are entirely the contribution of nature herself. Some day the shrine will disappear altogether, buried, like many others, in appreciative vegetation. As Shafto approached the rendezvous, he saw the Pongyi seated on the steps, engrossed in a book with the red cover, which he hastily thrust into some inner pocket as he rose to his feet. "'Ye might not think it, but I'm a great reader,' he explained apologetically. "'It passes the time, and is no sin. The saints themselves were wonderful writers and readers. 
A friend here gets me books out of the public library, and then I borrow when I can. What have you got hold of now? inquired Shafto. Fifteen decisive battles of the world, and before that, jungle tales. I could tell a good few myself. Animals and birds does be very friendly and confidential with me, but it's not books I brought you here to talk about, but cocaine and opium. Yes, rather. Have you got any news? I have so. I found out what I may call the head lair of the devils. Good for you. How splendid. How did you manage it? Bedad, it was a terrible touch-and-go business, as you shall hear. You see, I should first explain how I get so much liberty to go mooching round the bazaars and wharves. Being for so long weak in the head, and also of another country, allowances are made, and I'm looked on as an oddity, yet well respected, for I'm clever with cures and language. Well, well, I used to poke about among a lot of scum that has no respect for any cloth whatever. No, for life itself, and all the time I felt in me bones I'd surely find what I wanted among a crew that's just the sweepings of creation. There was one particular low wharf I used to hang round by way of watching fellows nutting fish, and one warm afternoon, as I was meditating there, the chance looked my way. Two half-drunken Chinamen came along quarrelling, and sat down near me, and I foxed I was sound asleep. They argued about shares and money, and jabbered away very angry, telling me all I wanted. By and by, when they cooled down a bit, they saw me, and this was what ye may call a critical moment for Mick Ryan. No doubt of that. Go on. At first one of them was undecided as to whether I was asleep or not. The other brute said, No chance take. Stick knife in throat and shove into the water. You know what these thieves are with their long blades. I tell ye, Mr. Shafto, they might have heard me heart-thumping. However, my good angel St. Michael himself had his eye on me, for it turned out that neither of them had a doll with him. Then they come and leant over me, breathing into me face with their filthy rank breath, reeking of napy and pickled eggs, and I snored back like a good one. I snored for my very life, and I'd done it so natural they were well satisfied, and I, being such a big man and heavy to shift, they gave up the notion of slinging me into the Irrawaddy, and went off still quarrelling. I stayed on without a move out of me for a full hour. Then I got up yawning my head off, and walked away with the clue in me hand. Is the din in Rangoon? There's many a queer place here. No, not in Rangoon itself, but some way up the river. About twenty miles beyond Prome there is a deserted village that was cleared out by cholera twenty years ago. They say a big cholera gnat lives there, and no one will go next or nigh it. There's a pagoda, a kyung, and a rest-house all smothered in jungle, and a nice little bit of convenient landing, and tis there the cocaine company does its business. I learnt all of their tricks. The Chinamen gave me lots of news. It seems they smuggle opium, too, and distribute the stuff up and down the river by boats, on land by pack animals and the railroad. Oh, it's a wonderfully handy situation. They couldn't have picked a better. And what about the people who run it? asked Shafto. Well, the head of them all is gone. 
He was, as you may have suspicioned yourself, that fellow Kraus. No one knows what's become of him. Some say he's in Calcutta. More think he's dead, died aboard ship. But that may not be true. Them sort of ruffians generally live to a great age. Someone may have put him out, or rather done him in. There were two or three chaps that I've heard talking terrible bitter again him, and one fine young man, Arbo, who is back from the Andamans, where he got sent to for three year on account of his cocaine business, told me that he met a lot of clever fellows from all parts of the world, up to every dodge they were, and one of them instructed him in the way of killing a man stone dead and not leaving a spot on him. I believe it's some little trick with the head, where it joins the spine. This chap confessed that he had tried it on several with success, and it wouldn't surprise me if he had made an experiment on Krauss. But what about the cocaine? said Shafto. How are we to set about getting a haul? Ye'll have to go easy, or rather, Mr. Fitzgerald and the Poles must work by stealth and he can take a good few disguised, as it were, on a sort of pilgrimage, but well armed, and passing through this village as it were accidental, and with a couple of boats on the river, I think they might scare the lot. I'd like to go with them meself, for a bit of sport. Only for me yellow robe, it wouldn't look so well for me to be seen mixed up with cocaine, thaves and the poles. No, I suppose not, agreed Shafto. You have to think of your cloth. Well, if you will write me down a few details on this slip of paper in my notebook, I will give it to Mr. Fitzgerald at once, and I can't tell you how thankful he will be to get hold of it, or how grateful to you we are. Oh, I don't want no thanks for what has been a real pleasure. Haven't I seen with me own two eyes all the terrible harm this drug taken leads to? And if I've been in a small way the means of putting a stop to some of it, I'll be a proud man. He paused to clear his throat, and continued, I suppose you have not seen anything of Mosh Chit lately? No. She keeps you from going to the Salters, doesn't she? She's always sitting about there on the steps, heartbroken, because she can't get a word with ye. Of course, I'm not surprised she took a fancy to ye. Fancy? Rot! burst out Shafto. I can't stand these cheeky Burmese girls. I only hope I may never set eyes on Machet again. Well, then, as likely as not, you won't, remarked Mung Ba soothingly. She has a rich relation up at Thayetmio, and she's swithering between love and money. Perhaps, after all, money will carry the day. Well, now, I must be going to me duties and me devotions, and I'll bid ye good evening. The conversation at the Heidelberg, interrupted by Lily, had been resumed on a suitable occasion in the gardens of the barn, and Sophie and Shafto were now provisionally engaged. "'I'm a wretched match for you, Sophie,' he declared. "'I don't believe your mother will allow it. I've no prospects.' "'Never mind prospects,' was her reckless reply. "'We shall have enough to live on. I have a hundred a year of my own.' and I am quite a good manager, with a real taste for millinery. If the worst comes to worst, I shall open a shop in Ferris Street and make our fortune. It was mail-day, and Shafto, who now dined at the barn, was unusually late in appearing. 
he looked rather excited and out of himself as he entered with many apologies after dinner he and sophie paced the drive in the silver moonlight and she began i could hardly sit still or read a morsel for anyone could see that you were bursting with some great news what is it i have two pieces of news and i'll give you first of all one that concerns ourselves i saw in the mail some weeks ago that my uncle julian shafto was dead he had no family and left no will and i found a letter to-day at the office from a lawyer informing that i being next of kin am heir at law and succeeded to the property and a fairly large income oh douglas how splendid it sounds too good to be true i never saw my uncle he and my father had a disagreement before i was born and had no communication with one another he did not even send us a line when my father died. I fancy he was a hard-bitten old bachelor. I've not seen the family place Shafton Court, and don't know much about it, except I remember my father saying there were one or two fine pictures, a fair library, and what did not interest him, first-rate partridge shooting. Oh, what a piece of good fortune! Do let us go in at once and tell Polly. "'But would you not like to hear my other piece of news, which is even better?' "'It could not be better, but do tell me quickly. "'Fitzgerald has brought off a splendid coup up the river, "'run in the cocaine gang, and collared no end of drugs. "'He is to receive the thanks of the L.G. and the government reward. "'How did he discover it? "'A man I know really put him on the track.' The cocaine lair was in a village so deserted and tumble-down and haunted that no one suspected it, or went near it. Upon Yi Kyong, said to be infested by malignant gnats and hundreds of snakes, was the head office. Rather a clever dodge. Do you think this will put an end to the traffic? No, but it will give a tremendous setback. Where there is a demand, there will always be a supply. But for a considerable time, at least a year or two, cocaine will be scarce. They caught a good many of the small fry, but as usual the big fish escaped. All but one wealthy Mohammedan, but he is bound to wriggle out somehow. Another point in favor of the short supply of cocaine, the disappearance of Krauss. What? exclaimed Sophie. Oh, Douglas, surely you don't mean he was in it? In it? I should think so, up to his neck. Oh, but are you certain? Quite certain. This will explain his many mysterious journeys, the gangs of natives who were always hanging round his office, and his suspicious opulence. You may have noticed that he had no friends among the better class of Rangooner. Whether British or German, they all suspected him of dirty hands. He had no conscience and was absolutely unscrupulous. It was a strange nemesis that his wife, to whom you say he was devoted, should kill herself with the very drug he was smuggling. Yes, poor Aunt Flora, murmured Sophie, that is a dreadful tale, which I shall always keep from mother. I think if she were to know it, it would nearly break her heart. End of chapter 35